that I had turned out very large. And I think I published six years at one point, and I was I, I had an extremely expensive wife, uh, extremely expensive children. I mean, she bought a Jaguar, you know, we had a five-bedroom, three-bathroom house on ten acres of land, and she would see a new car that she liked the looks of and just pull off and buy it. And under California law, I was legally bound by her debts. And uh, I just wrote like mad, and the only way I could write that much, I mean, I did 60 finished pages a day, mm -hmm. was to take amphetamines, and these were prescribed for me. Dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from straight inside an alien gelatinous mold to your brain holes. We are your personal dickheads. Um, no, we are not actually covered by a friend from Frolics 8, but we are covering that book today. Philip K. Dick's 26th published novel. We are here at the 70s. So uh, Anthony promised us some bell bottoms and a paisley shirt. I see neither. Uh, but Anthony, I, I did not. I did not sign that check. So <laughs> no, I did oh. not. Didn't. So uh, well, well, you wrote it, but you didn't sign it. So I did not write it. I never wrote it. Never wrote it. Didn't sign so it. Didn't write definitely it. Definitely don't but, have the. I mean, he did say he definitely doesn't have the paisley shirt. I have a lot of paisley shirts. <laughs> I have no bell bottoms. Well, um, <laughs> welcome, dickheads, to the 1970s. Um, we uh, are, it's amazing we are here, but uh, this book might feel like it was written in 1964, if you know your Philip K. Dick stuff, but it is 1970, and we'll get to that book. Or the 1800s, whatever, whichever <laughs> one. <laughs> You're just talking about the sexual politics, but we'll get there. So, um Anywho, we are your dickheads. I mean, Larry was trying to watch TV, okay? <laughs> uh, I am uh, David Agronoff. I am author of Goddamn Killing Machines, Punk Rock Ghost Story. And I also do another podcast called Postcards from a Dying World. Anthony, tell the folks who you are. Oh, yeah. So I'm Anthony Trevino. I'm also a writer and sometimes film critic for a bunch of various publications. Uh, you can find my new book, Hissers 3, co-written with Ryan C. Thomas, coming out hopefully next month. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Uh, and even though Anthony is, is not super proud of it, I like his novella, no. Space Void. So I'm going to push that out right. there. Well, I'm going to shuffle off into my embarrassment cave now, but thanks, David. <laughs> uh, well, we have another dickhead. Um, here for your enjoyment. Tell them who you are. I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. Yes, that's uh, a.k.a. Larry Langhorn J. Tweed. All right, so we're going to start off, like we always do, with the PKD news, of course. If you are a dickhead of um, well-to-do means, um, meaning that you can drop $900 on something fun or $850, the first bit of... Oh, yeah, I saw this the other day. Yeah. I almost bought it. <laughs> the first bit of uh, Philip K. Dick news is that... Um, was it f uh, fully... F oh, I'm screwing it up already. Get it Folio out. Society? Is it um, Folio Society? It's the, folio. 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 It's not, it's not the DeFolio Society. 
they are publishing these really fancy pants, like super interesting, multi bright colored editions of all of Phil K. Dick's short stories, every single one of them that the estate has. That's 118 short stories um, in one collection for 845 smackaroons. So um, I personally think that is way too much money for a bunch of short stories, but um, some they people... Recently, are... Didn't they recently do uh, one of the books in like a like a $500 version that was with some extra pictures and stuff like that. They've, like a lot of this, these dick books are coming out in these really special editions. I think it's really cool, but we I would love to own this, but yeah. Well, did you guys see the, the, uh, the uh, scanner darkly hardcover release? That yeah, just that's came the one. Out? That's or, the one I'm talking about. That's the one we were Yeah. yeah it looks. It's yeah, aces. but it's also $500. Or oh, it just, anyone watching the YouTube video, I'm just giving you the, it's a it's great chef's kiss sign. I'm not throwing up any. It's not a white supremacist thing. Everybody, fucking pack your calm down. Away. Calm down. Calm down. Um, yeah. So uh, this also has 24 illustrations, apparently. But I think for nine hundred dollars, the illustrator should come to Seven, your house and actually draw a well, picture. Seven hundred forty-five. I just looked at it again. It's seven hundred forty-five. Hey, hey, look, our dickheads art for the podcast costs more than that thing, so... Yeah. And it is stellar. Yeah. But that's what happens when you hire a renowned, uh, oftentimes dark horse artist, Mike Dubish. Yeah. Shout out to Mike. Um, But... This this edition is, is stunning looking. It is it would look really cool on the shelf, um, but I think if you spent that much money on a book, like would you feel comfortable like sitting down and reading it? I don't I don't know, but I would. Yeah, that feels like a weird flex showpiece, but I don't. Yeah, but I, I, yeah. I'm not the ty- I've never been the type of person to buy something and keep it in the box. You know, the you buy some toy you don't want to actually play with, or a comic book you don't actually want to read. You just leave it in in its little sheath forever yeah. without touching yeah, it. I've like never that. been like that. I would definitely read those stories in that book. Yeah. And I would dog-ear the pages. That's right, people. Dog-ear. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm trying to think. Do I keep things in packages? I did have a Rambo action figure that I kept in um, in a package for a long time because I was, in, I was, I was trying to track down David Morrell to sign my Rambo action figure case. And then, um, and I saw him at a couple conventions, but before I had the figure. So anyways, but uh, no, I, I have my, um, my short story collection editions are just fine. I'm, and I can dog ear and highlight. Yeah, I'm fine with mine. Yeah. So yeah, I write in mine. So sorry, whoever gets them once I shuffle off this mortal (laughs) coil. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, mine are, uh, very heavily um, um, highlighted. But um, anyways, that's the uh, first news item. The second news item is that the judges for next year's Phil K. Dick Awards have been chosen. Um, two, the only two names that were familiar to me are Molly Tanzer and Alan Steele, um, who I've read one of his novels before. But we'll, uh, we'll have the full list in the show notes. Yeah, um, but... 
for note for this show, um, Molly is an old friend, and um, she's going to come on the podcast before and after her experience of uh, being a judge for the award. I'm going to be interviewing her next week for the podcast. And cool. All right, so um, our friends from Frolics 8 came out in 1970. David. With a whole lot of love. What, 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 was, what was happening in 1970? Well, I'm glad you asked, Langhorn. 1970 was when the voting age was lowered from 21 to 18. It's hard to believe, right, that, that it was that recent? Right. And as a matter of fact, I was just listening to a Rod Serling lecture from UCLA from 1971, which was amazing, by the way, and you should go look for it on YouTube. Um, his diss on uh, John Wayne on there is worth the entire listen. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and he talked a lot about this, you know, young people in Vietnam and the, the idea that, yeah. You know, if you're old enough to go to war, you should be old enough to vote. Uh, Soyuz 9 orbited the Earth for 18 days um, That uh, during the... And by the way, I looked into the month that this came out, June 1970. These All, all these things happened in June 1970. Cool. Um, and uh, Led Zeppelin did their last tour of Europe. And yep, a whole really, lot of love. Yeah. So um, I wonder if uh, John Bonham was reading uh, our friend <laughs> from Frolics A, fresh out of the gate from Ace Books um, in 1970. Um, this is Philip K. Dick's triumph, triumphant return to the Wolheim camp. Mm. Uh, triumphant is a word. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's one way to put it. And look. <laughs> It's very clear that he wrote this book to like. It's very clear he wrote this book. Yep. Yeah. It, it's <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, is it book to be put on the shelf? Ersatz every other sentence. Divorcepedia all that? day. But look, I really feel that he was kind of writing cephalic. Cephalic. Let's remember, early in PKD's career, he said and we quoted him on this in the podcast one time, that he was writing many of his early books for an audience of one, Mr. Don Wilhelm. Right. I have sure. a feeling reading this book, he wrote this book to make Don Wilhelm happy in some weird way, because there's a lot of, this book hits a lot of notes. Some Wilhelmisms? The Wilhelmian, um, satisfaction so um because and and look if you look at the last two books that we or the last couple books that we read you know especially with like do androids dream and like you know he was he was doing a little bit of like kind of higher grade type sci-fi and we know he wrote this right after uh maze of death which we're going to read next which is i think a little bit it's not so wolheimian but what's funny is Ace seemed to try and push this book out one month before Maze of Death, so it was like they were racing to beat it. But anyways, this book was received at the SMLA, the Scott Meredith Literary Agency, on uh, June 11th, 1968. So, um, and it was, they got it right after uh, Maze of Death. 
And the next book that he wrote after our friends from Frolic's Hate is Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. So um, this is kind of a weird anomaly coming between Maze of Death and Flow My Tears, where it's kind of like... There was a big gap in there then. Yes. He wrote wrote Policeman in 1970, right? The year this came out. Um, well, there was a big gap, and if you look in Divine Invasions, there like was for him, a-, a big gap is like six months of not writing an entire novel. But <laughs> you did more than six months because a lot of the events that, that inspired um, Scanner Darkly, like he had dur- it, during, if we consult Divorcepedia, which, I don't remember which divorce he was going through, but the one that he was going through in this period before he wrote flow my tears, he went through a huge drought where he was doing lots of drugs and not writing. Um, and it's funny. Hackett. Yeah. Anyways. Um, so this was after raise of death before flow my tears. So I think this was the last book he wrote before the long stretch of, of really sad um, PKD meets lots of druggies coming over Meets oh, like, okay. I, I got to get out of here and go to orange County, um, to get away from, from all that stuff. Um, and this, this whole novel started as they were in the process of kind of trying to finalize the deal for maze of death with double day. And, um, and remember when we talked to Betsy Wolheim, she talked about how she really, her, her dad only actually met, Phil a couple times in person mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure she talked about this convention which is Baycon when Don Wilhelm came out to San Francisco in 1968 in August of 1968 and at that convention uh Wilhelm and Dick hung out and they and Wilhelm probably maybe had a few and said yeah sure Phil write me another book or I'd like to have you back. And I'm sure he did because at this point Phil's a Hugo winner and he never had quite the sales, but he was published. He did publish a couple with double day um, with do Android's dream. And he had maze of death coming out. So I'm sure Wilhelm wanted another book from him. And uh, so at this point, um, you know, when Phil got back, he wrote a letter to SMLA that says, dear Scott, I just now received a very nice letter from Don Wilhelm, in which he picks up where he and I left off at the convention. At that time, I told Don I wanted to do another novel for Ace, and in his letter he asked if I meant that, and I and still mean it. He says, I would like to see you keep on with us. Even though report has it, you've made pots of money with Doubleday. I don't know about pots of money, but I think we can come to some reasonable accommodation financially if given a reasonable chance. I have no new novel in the works, however, because I have been working on a maze with death. Is it a maze with death or is it a maze of death? Have I been thinking it's called wrong? It's a maze of death, I'm pretty sure. Maze of but death. It occur- uh, but it occurs to me that if Larry Ashmead doesn't want it, maybe Don might. I'm writing Don and I'm mentoring a maze with death. Could we try him if Doubleday turns the novel down? By the way, Don wants my material presented directly to him and not through Terry Carr. He says this is for me and would be published under my editorship. Because of Don's interest, I will start as soon as possible on another new novel. But it'll take a while. Would he buy an outline in a sample chapter? Or does he want the whole thing? <laughs> All right, so this this is part of one of the reasons why I have this theory that he was writing it specifically for Don. Don wanted didn't want it going through Terry Carr, who we remember did Crack in Space and did a couple of the Ace books for, I, I think, until... 
our teleported man to. Um, so, so this, when I say that this was written for Don, I think that's the proof, you know, uh, and also just because it, it feels like a book from, from that era. So, um, and here's where we get into some funny, like, um, the dog ate my homework kind of things, because apparently Phil was late turning in our friends from Frolics eight. So we have the letter, the, um, the dog ate my homework letter to Don Wolheim. All right. Well, here we go. Uh, dear Don, I have been stewing and fretting about completing the final copy of our friends. First, when I began typing the final version, I discovered that I had to change some of the material. Then I came down with Hong Kong flu. <laughs> Oh, you can't believe you made me read that with com- with com- with complications. And as the coup de grace, my Olympia typewriter broke down and had to go to the shop for repairs. Typing eighty thousand words on this damn loner thing is next to impossible. It's a nineteen forty one Royal. I have to have my own machine, and when I get it back, I'll resume the typing of the final draft, which I had gotten well into before the troubles began. I am very sorry, and I know the novel is overdue, but the revisions have been made. PKD, June 6th, 1969. Hong Kong flu, huh? Yeah, he got... Yeah. Uh, Yeah, the Hong Kong flu and uh, the typewriter broke, uh, so I can't finish it because there's no way I'm typing this up on a 1981... uh, 1941 Uh, uh, That's actually kind of like uh, an art... like an artist thing that I almost understand is being like, mm, I really can't sit down and do this at this new one. It's like totally unreasonable and stupid, but I get it. Um, but yeah, so if his typewriter wasn't working, I could see why that would delay him. But this letter is hilarious because it is really just like, you know, you know, I like the coup de grace is that my typewriter broke. I mean, the getting the flu real bad wasn't what did it, I guess. And uh, Anthony, did you want to read the situation? Yeah, so the sitch is, within the last century, two new types of human beings have arisen as sport mutations desired and preserved until, by 2085, they fill the top levels of business organizations, and in the planet-wide federal government, all persons who pass the civil service test must be either a new man or an unusual. And so, if I'm getting this straight, the new men are highly intellectual beings that have big giant domes from like that, from that short story Dick really likes. Right. And then the, and then the unusuals are telepaths. Yeah. Okay. The double domes, which is, you know, all right. So, um, he turned in the outline, uh, and 40 pages of manuscript first. And I think before he finished it, um, and Don like kind of signed off on the outline. Then, then he went and finished it and then he got the flu and his typewriter broke. So, um, you know, and I, I imagine definitely at that time, um, a, a writer and their typewriter were a, a very symbiotic relationship. And, 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 and I get that. All right, so that's it for the writing and publication history. It came well. One last thing is that it did come out. Maze of Death came out in July 1970, and uh, Frolics came out in June 1970. So that's back to back books for PKD is pretty cool. Um, and of course, uh, Maze of Death was a bigger deal, being with Doubleday and I think a hardcover. 
Uh, but Frolics 8 did get a science fiction book club edition in 1971, and hmm. so it did see hardcover. So um, it was popular enough to get that. And, uh, okay, so I think... Oh, um, yeah. Well, I'm kind of nervous for this. I don't know I'm if he's going to... it. Okay, the first time with the real mic. Story! Loop breakdown. All right, Langhorn, break it down for us while I go to the bathroom and grip my water bottle. Of course. Uh, I'll be here. uh, Here's the book in all its glory. Oh, you got the good cover. Our friend from Frolics, Frolics 8. All right, so we we start with Nick Appleton and his son Bobby going to take a test. Uh, Bobby's got to take a test to see if he's smart enough to join the government. And uh, so our main guy here, Nick, is really nervous. So, you know, as you do, you pop over to the drug bar. You just grab some amphetamines and some other shit and toss it down with your with your drug bartender, whatever. Like some dude just mix in your drugs for you, which is awesome. And I wish that was a real thing. And then, so Bobby's going to take his test. Bobby is like, oh, I'm going to fail. And Nick's like, you can't fail. Our lives depend on it. Our sad, pathetic little lives depend on you passing this test. And then we cut to some some of the egghead new men that are in charge of the test. And they're like, he's not going to pass the test because we won't let him. ha, 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 ha. And then so we find out that the new men are these, uh, they have this extra lobe in their brain or extra part of their brain that regular people don't have. Makes them super smart and have a totally different form of logic they can use and makes them better. At least that's the idea is that the new men are just better than regular people, which are now called old men. And, uh, the the other people are the u- unusuals, which are your your basic PKD psychics, you know your your mind readers, your telekinesis people, the blah blah blah, pre-cogs. all that all that crap, precogs, all that. Uh, so our our guy goes home. His wife is uh, talking to some dude who turns out to be a guy that they're they're testing to see if if uh, they're gonna if they're traitors to the government, which the traitors to the government who are regular people called old men are in a group that are called the undermen. So we have old men who are undermen and new men and unusuals. So those are all the people that are involved. Well, then there's also frolics, eight aliens, but then that's, that's something else. All right. So we find out that speaking of aliens, Thor's Provoni, who is, like this revolutionary uh, stole stole a, a space plane and went out, rocketed out into space to go find alien help to over overthrow the new men and the unusuals and bring the power back to the undermen or the old men. He might be my favorite PKD character in a long time. Who? Uh, or Provoni? Provoni, which is a great PKD name, by the way. Yeah, right. Uh, so 
All right. So uh, then there's this whole story about uh, this guy, Corbin, who's a, or Corden, who's Provoni's like right-hand man and sort of an intellectual who does all this writing. And they, they, the undermen make pamphlets of his writings and pass them out and sort of like underground circles to, you know, keep the revolution going while Provoni's out finding us alien help for all us regular people. So that's the idea. And then we meet the, the bad guys, the super villains. So we have Barnes, who's in charge of the cops, and he's a new man, Dick. Uh, and then we have our main bad guy, Willis Graham, who, in my opinion, is like, uh, uh, what is his name? Lord Harkonnen mixed with a, uh, Mixed with uh, what's his face from Big Trouble in Little China, the um, Low Pan. He's like Low Pan, Low Pan, and, and uh, Lord Harkonnen mixed together. And he's he's just a disgusting guy. He he's got a bedroom office. He's so he's kind of in a, in a way he's a little bit like uh, Brian Wilson, and uh, I guess uh, also Florence Nightingale, who stayed in bed for ten years. Uh, but so he's got, he doesn't even leave his room ever. He just sits in his room. He's catered to, he makes all the decisions. He's an unusual, so he can read people's minds and Barnes is his main guy. And then he's also got this sexless super cop. That's supposed to be watching his wife, but that, that sort of drifts away. Mostly. Except for the lawyer. Never comes back to do a bunch of cool super cop stuff. Missed opportunity. Yeah, she, yeah that character sort of just disappears. Uh, so the, then they're talking and he's he's like, oh, I got, you know, we need to stop this whole Provoni Corden or, yeah, Corden shit from going on. So I've got this plan, this master plan where we'll kill my, my wife who's divorcing me and we'll kill Corden and boom, everything's fine. Nobody even knows if Provoni's alive. So, hey, there goes the insurrection. We're all in charge. We can put more undermen into these uh, concentration camps on the moon and in Utah for some reason. <laughs> the moon and Utah. That's the concentration camp areas. Uh, so so I mean, then that, Utah, that. one of those sounds worse than the other. And let me tell you, I'd rather go to the moon. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, all right. Back to our, our guy, Nick. Nick is go. He goes to work. They, they kill Corden. He's like, Oh my God, I can't believe they killed that dude. His boss is like, Oh my God, I can't believe they killed that dude. Like seriously takes it real serious. And so uh, our, our guy, Nick is like, what? So what's, are you like one of those spy guys, those undermen weirdos? And, and his boss, whose name is Zeta. Earl Zeta is like, you know, kid, I am one of those guys. Let's go have a beer. Because beer I is am illegal. one of those dudes. <laughs> beer alcohol is illegal. And it's a great, it's a great flip where all drugs, all pharmaceuticals are legal and you can get them at your at your whim. You can just go and get some meth or coke or whatever you want. So downers, uppers, it's all up to you. But when it comes to alcohol, that shit's wrong. Wrong with a capital R. Uh, 
So, uh, wait a second. Nick's on, <laughs> Nick says, uh, well, I don't know if I could drink alcohol, but he does. And then, then dude's like, let's go get you a pamphlet so you can be an underman. And, and Nick's like, oh, I'm, sure, I'm down. I'm down to ruin my entire life on a whim. Let's do it. So they go to this house and they meet uh, Denny, who's this psycho, psycho dude. Uh, and they meet Charlotte, who is a 16-year-old uh, girl Boy, who here we go. Nick falls immediately in love with. Like, love at first sight. Oh, my God. I'm 35. She's 16. It's a match made in heaven. Just how could it get any better than that? The only problem is she has this boyfriend, Denny, who's kind of a dick, right? And it turns out to be an alcoholic and a raging alcoholic, like raging in the actual sense of raging, where he he tries to beat her up and she bites him. And then then uh, Zeta pins Denny down and, and they escape. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. And then so our guy escapes with his new crush and he's like, where do we go from here? Let's go to my house. And so they go to his house. His wife finds out that he's now an underman and she gets pissed and she's like, well, you brought this cute little girl into our house and now she's leaving. You, you have a choice now leave with her or, and leave me forever or stay here and leave and not be with her ever. And dude's like, all right, so, sorry, wife and kid. I'm out. I'm peace out. So he leaves and he goes and chases after his 16 year old, Teenage queen. Uh, You're only 16. Anyway, so he he chases after her, and then the cops are after them. They go to this house, this publishing place, and it gets broken into by the cops. Cops raid the place. They get arrested. Turns out that our gross uh, Willis Graham headmaster, whatever his name is, council chairman, of the Extraordinary Committee for Public Safety, Willis Graham, has the hots for the 16-year-old as well, of course. Because who doesn't want a breastless 16-year-old to bed down and ruin? Uh, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and he really <laughs> does want to Did ruin. Did you really need to? Oh, God, did you use that word again? Ruin. Ruin. Oh, he even says it. I mean, he has a whole conversation. There's a there, yeah. He has a whole model oh, inner monologue about really, it. It's yeah, foul. It's foul. Yeah. It's awesomely foul. I have a Ken Stanley foul. Robinson quote that's about this. Like, <laughs> nice. When we get there, right? Not right, specifically so, about that, but about personal life <laughs> leading in. So they, uh, so they both get arrested, and uh, they both confront. Uh, Graham, so Nick and and Charlotte, Charlie, whatever you want to call her, they they both confront Graham at separate times. Uh, Nick is let go, and uh, Charlie actually beats up some guards and escapes. She is being held by four strong guards, but somehow she she like hulks her way out of it, even though she's a frail sixteen year old girl. She finds a way through sheer will. And so then we go back to Denny's house. Denny is there and he's like, Hey, everything's cool. Now I'm no longer psychotic right on. We're all friends. But uh, then some cops show up, blah, blah, blah. They, they tussle. Then Denny's like, let's go to the roof and get my car. 
my badass car that I call some kind of purple land whale or something. And then he, uh, they get, get up to the roof. Denny gets shot in the face by one of the cops. Uh, Charlie and Nick escape. And then they go to hang out at some other dude's house. While, meanwhile, meanwhile, <laughs> Boris Pavoni, who is definitely still alive and not in great shape. He's sort of, you know, on the edge of a, on the edge of sanity, on the edge of uh, his his um, ability to survive. He's got very little water left, but he's got this cool alien friend who surrounds his ship and keeps him safe and tucks him in when he goes to sleep. And they they become he has this friendship with a, an alien from Frolics Eight, who is sort of a vanguard. He's the the le- he's not the leader of the the Frolics people, but he's the uh, what what do you call it the the like uh, ambassador for the Frolics Eight uh, aliens, and if he goes and succeeds in doing what he has to do, then the rest of the Frolics Eight million year old aliens who can destroy us at at, at will. Well, they destroyed everything. Don't have to. They destroyed don't everything. Have to but destroy. Them. They yeah, destroyed they, everything. But that's what they did on their planet. Yeah, uh, but. They could destroy us if they wanted to without any problem. And that is their plan if... I can destroy you if I want to. I can get (laughs) you. If Morgo, our alien, our Frolics alien, Morgo, does not succeed, they will come and they will destroy everyone. So that's the whole whole deal. And then, so the government's trying to stop Provoni from getting to Earth. And he keeps calling in like, I'm getting closer. And they're like, oh, shit, let's send some aliens, let's send some missiles and stuff to stop him. I'm still getting closer. And then he's like, oh, shit, he's still getting closer. Let's do some more random bullshit. I'm getting closer. Uh, and he says, I'm going to land in like six hours. So be ready or 16 hours. Be ready. But he lands 32. early in Times Square. Thank you, Anthony. That's important information. Uh, <laughs> so he lands early in Times Square and they step up. laser him. They try to laser his ass with a these giant with a giant laser, but Morgo. Oh my god! So Morgo says, "Oh yeah, that's cool. That's just giving me more power. I actually have the strength to do." How about what I a have laser from Kansas City? <laughs> and so what Morgo has to do is he has to end the threat to them. So this has nothing to do with saving the. The, the humans for, for Morgo. He doesn't really care about saving humanity. He doesn't, isn't for us or against us. But he knows the new men have the ability to eventually be a threat to Frolic's eight people. So he just goes and basically takes out that little uh, bit of their brain that makes them different. Just sort of, you know, just pop. You don't have that anymore. Turns them into dribbling idiots. So the new men are now the kitties because they don't have any their 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 like brains are mush now. Their big brains are mush. And he also takes away the unusual's ability to do whatever their psychic stuff is. And uh Provoni is like, yeah, all right. So this is what's happening. Now I'm gonna be in charge. And Graham's like, no, you're not, I'm still in charge. I'm the big man on campus. And then he he decides, oh, well, maybe I'm not the big man on campus. 
Meanwhile, there's a car chase where um, where Charlie just uh, gets her head split in half when they crash. At, this is after they have horrible sex in Times or in uh, uh, Central. What is it? Uh, Central Park. They're in Central Park. That's where they have sex. They have really bad sex in Central Park, and uh, then they are trying to escape the cops, and Charlie just. <laughs> like cleaved in half her head and Nick breaks his arm, but he's like, Hey, I got to go talk to the boss. And this cop's like, yeah, I don't care. Everything. You know, my bosses are all mush anyway nowadays. So, so like whatever you want to do, I'm, I'm all for it, but I ain't going inside. So he goes and he talks to the boss, uh, talks to Graham and uh, they have it out a little bit. like the, this little conversation, where all the, all the stuff is decided. And then, then dude goes to see uh, uh, this other guy who doesn't really matter much. Amos Ild, who is a the, supposed to be the smartest guy on earth, but he's really just a psycho. But now that his brain has been taken out of him, he's sort of like a, a savant, like sort of a one of his prophetic, brain. prophetic savant. character. In the book, <laughs> no, he's not better than Thor. Provini. <laughs> well, we can Provoni. argue. Provoni, Provoni, Thor, Provoni, Provoni. Yeah. All right. So th- then he talks to him, and then he goes and gets his arm fixed, and uh, you know, sort of everything's going great for everybody. There's one thing left, though. There's this lawyer who is uh, Graham's w- wife's divorce lawyer. He's not well liked by Graham, but he thinks he's he's got it made. But he's also one of these new men, so he struts into the office like, "Hey, I got some stuff to talk about, so you better call your boy, and I'll go in when I feel like it." And and then uh, the secretary is like, "Yeah, he's not even here." Oh well, I will wait for him, and you can call him back here because I'm whatever my name is, and I'm super cool divorce divorce lawyer guy and then he picks up this statuette of by the way god is dead and floating in space just yeah, in case just you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> that's just thrown in there oh i got really, so much to say about this really just i have so much to say there. about this Sorry, Kim Stanley <laughs> Robinson, so. and then uh so he picks up this uh statuette of god and he looks at it and he's like what is this this is a like a statue oh it's a statue and he loses his mind then and the the uh, secretary takes care of him, like sits him down, asks him if he wants some coke, not a coke, but some coke. Like that's a, no. it's a it's an odd odd sort of thing to ask someone. So you're now brainless. Do you want some coke? The answer right. is always yes. But go on. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so then, uh, so yeah, that's the book. That's it. That's pretty much it. Um, by the way, it ends with a sad P. It's just a sad trickle of P of an ending. Just <laughs> yeah, I like uh, I like tell the you end. though. I do. I, I really know. liked that last scene because that guy was a dick. I have two immediate thoughts uh, after the story yeah. breakdown before we get real serious into it. One is there's a part of me that wishes the title was Thor and Morgo from Frolics Eight. I kind of <laughs> wish that was the title. I think it's Thor's Provoni. I think there's an S that you're leaving out on the end of that. Yeah, Thor's. Yeah, it's Thor's Provoni. 
and that's the other thing. Thor's Provoni is definitely the name of the calzone at my PKD themed restaurant. If I ever open it, <laughs> I'm just saying. Um, Would, on this on this new cover, David, that you that you've renamed, is Thor's Provoni like super jacked, and he's like flying the plane, but he's real ripped. Yeah, he's like super muscular, like fly guy. No. But you could also call it uh, Thor's and Morgo save planet Earth or save the Earth or something. Right. Yeah. I think I almost think that would be a better title just because I think their names are hilarious. But <laughs> this this book has some serious A has PKD names and the PKD job of the, the tire regroover. Um, but I didn't find a single auto something. No yeah. auto auto, no artifogs, no uh, autovax. I didn't. There were precogs and there's like hilarious double dome guys had hilarious names. So there, so there was that, you know, I kind of, and there was no mention of conaps, which was super weird. There was not a single conap. No, they were actually apartments. Yeah. Yeah. So it's weird because some of those things he could have done more of, but um the first thing I want to talk about is the transhuman stuff. The test, we'll talk about that right there. Um, and the testing. And so I thought it was interesting, this idea that the testing became so important that, um, you know, society is basically like, you know, there's a, a caste system between like the different types of humans and metahumans and transhumans that are going on here. And you got to get your psych tests so you can prove which class you fit in. And, um, and I think what he's trying to set up that when Thor's Provini leaves in the gray dinosaur is Provoni. Provoni. Um, I think what he's trying to set up is that the earth is just this kind of fucked up place, you know, and Thor's goes out there to try and find somebody that can, or find a way to, to um, fix it or, or to find it or is what he was trying to do. But anyways, um, but what we do find out um, about this class structure, and it's interesting because the class structure is hinted at, but the first time it's really explained is pretty deep into the book, which is 96 pages in. And it says, um, could you of all the double domed, super evolved new men have coped with the, um, the two, the two of them here on Earth working together, the answer is no. Um, and they, he talks about how the friggin' rabble, all these old men and undermen, and, you know, it's just weird because it's so deep into the book before he really kind of gets into an explanation of, like, you know, who and what they are. It's, what do you mean? Well, okay. I, I felt like it was really upfront. I mean... The new men are smart. The unusuals are psychics. Regular people are regular. The dum-dums. The new men are trying to gain control of the government over the unusuals, but the unusuals actually have the highest office, so they're still in power struggle there. Okay, yeah. yeah, All that that is early in the book. Oh, right, right. Okay, I did find it on page 18. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> way different than page 96 yeah sorry <laughs> god damn 
Oops. Really came about at page 218. <laughs> On page 84, there is a scene where they first talk about the idea that Provoni is bringing an alien to um, to fight against the old, the old, or to fight against like the system where that is that where we first meet Provoni is on on that page or is that still no, later? I don't think it's where we first meet him, but it says, "Doesn't it seem to you to be a betrayal of the human race? Old men, under men, new men, unusuals, everyone to bring non-human life form." Which will probably want to colonize here once it's destroyed us. So they kind of oh, is that, oh, is that Barnes? Yeah, Barnes says that. Yeah. And so he's like trying to argue that this structure that they're all human, but I think what the book is trying to say throughout is that they become something other than human by evolving in these different ways. So yeah, well, like, I mean, there's a lot of parallels to uh, Nazi Germany, isn't there? Concentration camps that this sort of uh, not Aryan, but intellectual ideal of, you know, being better than everyone else. Well, what I thought was kind of funny about this is with the transhuman part of this is that you have here is that all these higher classes that of like metahumans, right. That like they, they, they open the, they say we're superior. So we built these concentration camps, but as soon as somebody's coming and threatening them, they, and they're they, like, wait, but we're all humans. Betraying us. Yeah, right? Right. <laughs> they kind of want it both ways. Now, um, Kim Stanley Robinson um, talked about this, and um, Anthony, it's the second Kim Stanley Robinson quote. If you. Our Friends from Frolics 8 is similar in structure and situation to the novels of 64 and 65. The narrative scheme is once again expanded to include six point of view characters. It follows that the plot structure is therefore returned to the complexity of the earlier political novels. The fictional world is dystopian, a police state run by an elite of artificially evolved new men who are relegating the old men, normal humans, to concentration camps. The cast of characters includes a tire regroover and his mean wife, an intense an intense and dangerous young woman that this little protagonist becomes involved with, a despotic world leader as big protagonist, a wise alien, a single space traveler returning from deep space, an evolved genius whose intelligence proves worthless, whose intelligence proves worthless. <laughs> um, in other words, all of the characters of the middle dystopias whom we have become so familiar with. At first glance, every element looks strikingly familiar. If the novel were dated sixty-four, even fifty-seven. Uh, we would not be too surprised. The overthrow of the world police state at the end harkens back to the wish fulfillments of the 50s and the devolution of the new men in the ambiguous role of the omnipotent alien remind us of the more cynical conclusions of the novels of 1964. Yeah, that's a lot, but it's a really good quote about, about you know, in my opinion, he, 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 he sums up the book really well there in total, but specifically with the transhuman stuff. Is there anything yeah. else? Uh, now, the tests turn out to be complete bullshit anyways. Um, on 115, there's of the Mariner edition. Um, Nick Appleton says, I became an underman when we got back the results of our son's civil service test. And when I saw how they managed to test him on the basis of questions he could never possibly know or understand, I realized when I re- when I realized that all my years of trust in the government had been wasted. And I think a lot of this is PKD 
PKD doesn't trust the government. He thinks he's, I, I believe that he thought, you know, in many ways too, that he was, he was smarter than, than people were giving him credit for. And so I think some of these personal feelings are kind of coming out in Nick Appleton in this, in, in this. Sure. Yeah. I, I, that's why I say it's, it's as purple as it is because of that, that kind of thing that's sort of thrown in there in this one that like the, the, the fact that he talks about being 35 and, uh, and dating someone way younger so you can sap their suck their youth out. Like if you if you've never done that before, you don't you wouldn't really see that that sort of a that sort of connection, that relationship. And I I think the the same is true about the government part, about the media as well. Like when he, he talks about how the newsmen are just like puppets of the government and all that stuff. He's he's really voicing his own opinions a lot in this one. Here's the thing um, with the test and everything that's going on. I just really do believe that this, that he's really talking about like the fact that, um, you know, for example, like science fiction was always, he was always talking about how he, science fiction was looked down upon and, you know, his desire to reach mainstream success, which he never got. And so I think a lot of this stuff with the undermen and like the class society stuff has to do with his feelings of inadequacy for not being able to move forward with these kind of mainstream literature books that he had. And I may be reading way too much into it. I, I mean, I personally didn't, didn't catch any of that, but, but I, I mean, I can, yeah. yeah, I can, I can see how it could be interpreted that way. I, I just, I, I see it as much more allegorical to, to you know Germany and all that. So, yeah, and and so with the personal life stuff, um, <clears throat> there's a uh, the first quote from Ken Stanley Robinson kind of deals with this. Uh, Anthony, can you read that? At one point in our friends from Frolics Eight, he has one character say to another, "You must untangle your public life from your private life. You've got them all mixed in together, and he most certainly does. Private matters ranging from minor things such as complaints about mean ex-wives or the lack of good Chinese food in Boise, Idaho, or the death of a favorite cat, to more important matters such as the obsessive fa- fascination with intense young women appear over and over. And that that is true. That is an ongoing. Those are all ongoing themes with." Yeah. A lot of Dick's work. Although that that argument about the with the uh, with Thor's and on Morgo about the the cat yeah. and the dog, that's hilarious. Because I have that argument all the time with people. It's so yeah. weird that cats and dogs uh, have that effect on people like that. The just the he gets so into his cat stuff and 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 Morgo's like I I prefer dogs, right. Um, yeah, same, yeah, Morgo, same. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Me too, but... <laughs> we're all dog people here. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just interesting that, you know, and, and I don't want to belabor this point because we've talked a lot already about how his, how his private life is bleeding into this book more. I mean, they all do, like, yeah. really. And I, to a certain extent, that's yeah, true. Some authors, like, are really good at hiding their lives. And I, I think one, especially the times he's going through a divorce, it, it really bleeds much more into his, into his writing. But don't you think 26 novels in now, 
that we can tell when it's happy Phil and when it's divorce Phil? I think we can, yeah. Yeah, you can tell just by reading it. You don't have to, we don't have to look at Divorcepedia anymore. We really, really don't, no. No, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like. Well, you know, I, well, I mean, you know, once he has that, that scene with the, the defense lawyer or the, uh, the divorce, the divorce lawyer. lawyer. Yeah. Right at the beginning. And then he's like, I have to kill my wife. <laughs> it's like, well, and then the other wife who is absolutely not a bitch in any way, as far as I'm concerned, like she's just sort of no, there. She's fine. She's fine. She's but, done nothing. What's her name? <laughs> Cleo? KLEO? Yeah. yeah. She's done nothing to warrant any of his bullshit, any of Nick Appleton's no. bullshit. <laughs> she doesn't do anything. She no, literally. And she even like accepts him after. <laughs> He's, he's told all this bullshit. She's like, you can come back. You know, yeah. I'll keep it, it, it for you. And what does he do? He fucking smacks her in the face. And she's like, for interrupting the TV broadcast. Yeah, yeah. dude, I can't, I can't sympathize with Nick Appleton at all. No, dude, I, had to put, I had to put the book down at that point because I just didn't want to read about Nick anymore. Once he uh, smacked no, his wife. Because he's a like, worthless character. Yeah, Nick Appleton's a worthless character in this book. I would rather have had more of a focus on uh, Cleo and Bobby. Yeah, right. And we could jettison Nick Appleton's useless, <laughs> one-dimensional. I'm trying to have sex with this 16-year-old character and just yeah. ride out, ride out the airlock. I don't care. Yeah. Do you, uh, so yeah. Did you listen to our last episode? Did you catch the quote at the beginning from PKD? Mm-mm. It's a uh, he talks about how he he writes his main characters, his protagonists, as sort of he calls it anti-heroes who have uh, fundamental flaws in their in their character and not okay. not caused by external forces, but they are just just fundamentally flawed. I think I, I could be wrong about this too, and but with the Cleo character, and I tried to look up Cleo, but he had an ex or there was a, I think there was a woman that he had a relationship with who kind of, it didn't go very far. Whose name was Cleo, I think. Um, oh, really? Yes. I think that there, I think that name was chosen to be like a, intentionally. Yeah. Intentionally. Like and, and I think as far as her being a positive character is one thing. So sorry to go back one topic, That's fine. but as but far yeah, as, the, uh, you know, she was definitely, I would say underused, underdeveloped, yeah. and, and and treated absolutely poorly. So the police state stuff is really interesting, and it was- is it talk about it. I'm going to go pee. <laughs> but yeah, so the official documentation and everything that people have to, to carry around, they have to take the psych test. That's all major things. Also, I think um, the government. And on page 17, it says the government is planning a program of sterilization of old men males. Um, that's kind of interesting thing. Um, I love on page 30 that um, when says that when the great ear goes into operation, it will be capable of telepathically monitoring thought waves of tens of thousands of persons with ability not found among unusuals and unscramble these enormous flood tides of so like the great ear, which is like big brother on steroids, but, um, and this is again, something we'll talk about in Dick like suggestions is happening in China right now. Like um, the, 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 the things that. (laughs) 
What do you mean that's happening in China? <laughs> well, that's in my dick-like suggestion. I just read a book about the surveillance state in China, and um, and a lot. Oh, okay, so it's not psychic. Okay, no, it's so not it's psychic, there. but <laughs> no, I was, no, I was no. way behind on technology. If China had a psychic <laughs> uh, device, no, but. Um, the level to which they manipulate social media is as effective as the great year. Or, oh yeah. That he's They've talking about here. Yeah. That, that's like my, that's my point. And all that shit. Yeah. I mean, and, and the weird way is, is that the way that the modern world, neighbor. the way the world turned out is that um, people aren't being, you know, they're not like, Big Brother is not looking at them through the window. They're logging on to Big Brother, right? And to the great year. It's like you're putting your login and password into um, establishing your connection with the great year, right? And well, that's-, that's why I say, you know, anyone who complains about uh, they're, they're worried about their stuff being uh, losing their privacy, and they're going online anywhere or have a, a, a phone or anything like that. They're, they're, they're kidding themselves if they think they're somehow have any privacy whatsoever. Privacy is dead. Yeah. Know that privacy is dead and deal with it. Yeah. So um, we kind of already talked about the police state, the PSS, but one of the, police state things that I thought was particularly funny happens on page um, 112 where, where uh, Nick Appleton asks for an attorney and they say, you can't have one because of the enabling legislation passed last year, forbidding legal representation of anyone already arrested. That's like a catch 22 right there. Yeah. That's, um, that's 10 years in relocation camp. Uh, being in the presence of other coordinates, five years found in a building where illegal written material is being written. So, um, so you you have to have everyone has to have a lawyer ahead of time if they want legal representation. Which, well, in a society that has precognition, I mean, you would yeah. think that would be possible. <laughs> yeah, and then all you have to do is be you know in amongst the the elite in order to uh, be safe from that. Um, and then the last thing, um, Cleo at one point talks about the 30 years war being the most important event in history. And she says, knows that because she studied it. She majored in an era of Western culture and she knew what she was talking about. Right. <laughs> um, so the next thing I want to talk about um, is Thor and, and Thor's, uh, Thor's. Thor's and Morgo, the buddy cop part of the story. <laughs> like, um, I don't know, but it seems like Thor's and Morgo should have a love theme um, whenever the, <laughs> the movie comes out. Because, man, they they are they are best buds. Um, so. Yeah, he wraps him up when he sleeps. I, I, I really like that being the first scene. Him waking yeah, up. Yeah, that's really good you know, scene. Of their... Of, of that part of the book, but Thor is waking up and, and Morgo like wrap having him wrapped up just in case. Cause he doesn't understand sleep. Right. That's um, a great alien, alien thing to, uh, to have in there. 
that's when he brings up uh, Jung and uh, the he explains the collective unconscious. Right. All that oh, oh, educate me. I'm just a dumb man who <laughs> doesn't know anything about Jungian theory. He says that's the greatest of human thinkers Carl Jung discovered. I didn't learn anything. <laughs> I didn't learn anything from this. I, I, I have done. I've done my my share of uh, reading of Jung, and uh, it's not relevant anymore. Is it's not relevant in psychology, psychiatry. It's it's not relevant. The only the only thing that keeps Jung in the conversation is that writers use the archetypes uh, in in certain ways in their novels and stuff like that, and in movies. And uh, and people take that stupid Briggs test that says if they're uh, you know NG or whatever it is, some bullshit. So that's all Jung is nowadays. Just useless. You're a corporate questionnaire designed to see where you fit in into society. Yeah. That's it. I hate that shit. That th- those things bug me. Those Myers Briggs tests. Yeah, the Myers Briggs. You test. can take it to the bank. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's move on. So, uh, Thor's Provini, Provoni, Provoni, Thor's Provoni, with his ship, the Gray Dinosaur, which is a f- hilarious name for for a spaceship, right? Like <laughs> the Valiant or something like that. You know, the Defiant. What was the one from? Uh, what was that other one? It was a whale. Oh. Um, the unteleported man, I think you're thinking of. Yeah. Um, uh, but I like here he says, um, he thinks of himself. He says, I, the traitor, the caller upon the unhuman for support, opening the earth to invasion by creatures which otherwise would never have noticed it. Will I go down in history as one of the most evil of men or savior? Or perhaps something less extreme down the middle the subject of a quarter-page entry in Britannica. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he, I, I know I said when I did the breakdown that uh, that Morgo was only there to protect his interests. And, and that's just sort of my opinion, I think. I don't even know if that's actually what it is. Because Morgo himself says he, he wouldn't help unless he was asked for help. Because that's how the Frolix 8 people yeah. are. They only help when they're asked for help. And as far as, you know, and he also says, we've always known about you for hundreds of, or thousands of years. We've known yeah. about people and, and what you do. You're just, you just haven't been a threat. So we don't care. Yeah, and That's what sort of led me to the conclusion that the main reason he was there was to protect his own interest. Yeah. Um. I, two, a couple pages later, he says um, that uh, he says something about they'll take over Earth and then spit me out to die, right? <laughs> yeah, and, which was a great part. And then, and then I, I I still don't quite understand why they can't lie. Yeah, I don't know that either. But I like um, here he's um, uh, Morgo says if you don't believe me, you don't believe him. An entity over six million years old. The Phylloxian sounded exasperated. <laughs> yeah. Um, Phylloxian, yeah. That's Phylloxian. And, um, yeah, there's... there's. I, I really do think the relationship between those two characters is kind of hilarious, and I like that it's so weird because um, 
you know, just the nature of who they are. Yeah. The nature of who they are and like, you know, how surreal of a thing it is. And, and it's kind of fun to explain. Like I, I remember I was reading this on the bus, Carrie and I were riding the bus to North park and I was reading this and, so I was like trying to explain what the plot was. And I'm like, well, there's this guy and he's in this <laughs> giant gelatinous alien. And it's like, it sounds pretty hilarious. But um, so uh, uh, one thing that we haven't talked about at all yet is that, you know, uh, uh, Thor's is a an unusual and a new man. Yeah. So even if he's saving all the all the regular people all the old men, uh, he's still going to rule as a new man and an unusual. Well, sort of, yeah. Oh, well, sort I, of. He is still a new man and an well, unusual. Well, yeah, yeah. But he's not going to rule over, like, I, I don't think he's going to become the ruler, right? He's gonna, yeah, he's taking power from, uh, what's his face? Yeah, That's the, the whole reason that what's his face is going over there go into Times Square is to hand power over grandma's handing power over to Thor's. So that's the, it's sort of a weird conclusion, you know, that he's now getting rid of all the unusuals and the new men, but then still ruling as a new man and unusual. So um, at one point um, to talk about their motivation, on page 125 of the Mariner edition, the fathers, uh, Thor's Provini thought, yes, that's what they are. Our friends from Frolic's Age, which is mentioning the title. Um, as if I managed to contact the Yurverter, the primordial, I don't know how that's pronounced. <laughs> the primordial father who built the Eidos Cosmos. They are upset and anxious because something is going wrong in our world. They care. They have empathy. They know how desperate our need is and how we feel. They know what we need. So, I mean, he's just saying that they're, yeah. they're kind of like primordial fathers and that, that they care about creating. Yeah, I see. I, I, I know I, I definitely inferred quite a bit from, from the what's in the book, but right. I stand, I stand by what, what I think is the, the main motivation. Mm-hmm. Well, and then on one thirty-seven, I don't know about that altruism thing, especially if they're they have a wave of Froloxians coming behind them to destroy Earth if he fails. So, right, and then on page one thirty-seven and thirty-eight says, "I receive something coming from your planet." Morgo said, "I get to pick up and hold little forms: cats, a dog, a leaf, a snail, a chipmunk." Uh, do you know, do you understand that on Frolic's 8, all life forms except for ourselves were sterilized, hence long ago disappeared? Although I've seen records of them, three-dimensional recreations that seem absolutely real. Kind of similar to Do Android's Dream, I guess, right there. And yeah. then Morgo says, that bothers you that we could do that ourselves. We are growing, dividing, growing. We need to urbanize every inch of our planet. The animals would starve. We prefer using sterilized gas, utterly painless. It could not have lived in our world with us. So, yeah, that doesn't sound super empathetic. (laughs) And, um, yeah, but anyways. It does sound very practical. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes it does. Um, And then it, but it also gives a scope of their ability, like what they can do. So, um, 
But yeah, and then um, on page, uh, well, the thing about Thor, one of his best moments, and maybe we should say this to the end, is when he when he speaks to the people from Times Square is great. Um, right. I really didn't like that part. Um, and uh, but no, let, let's go to that one. One. Um, so on one ninety three and ninety four of the Mariner edition, um, and I love this. His name, Provoni said into his microphone, is Mor- um, Morgo Ron Weil. I want to talk to you about him in detail. First, this. He is ancient. He is telepathic. He is my friend. <laughs> I like that. I thought that was kind of sweet. He yeah. is my friend. It was. Yeah. yeah. And then um, <laughs> on the TV, he says... I never saw his world. He met me in deep space. He was on patrol and picked up automatic radio signals my ship was emanating. There in deep space, he rebuilt my ship, consulting telepathically with his brothers in Frolics 8, and was given permission to accompany me back here. He is one of many. I think he can do what we must do. If he can't, there are hundreds more like him waiting one light year away in his ships, in ships capable of passing through hyperspace. So if necessary, they could be here in a very short period of time. And then Ed Woodman's like, he's bluffing. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Ain't nobody go through hyperspace in 15 minutes. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I really did like the, and he's my friend. Oh, shucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it was that moment. Yeah. And, and so for me, like, the setup of how things were on earth, just it didn't work for me as well as all the Thor's Provini and the frolic stuff. I really liked. And, and in fact, I don't know why it didn't work for you though. I don't know why it didn't work for me either. It just didn't, I just didn't connect to it. Um, yeah. I, I felt that was the best part for me. The best part was the setup of, uh, you know, having to take that test and the, the power struggle between the different races of people. You know, all that stuff was was really interesting for me. But see, I feel like that's a book, and then this other stuff is a book. And the whole the whole before we know Thor's is alive, you know, and the the Corden stuff, all that stuff was really interesting. Like, is this guy alive? Which we obviously know because we read the back jacket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, well, and, uh, it's all really interesting, but it doesn't all work together. Does not coalesce? It, for, is that... for me, it doesn't coalesce as well as it should, right? Like throughout the novel, or just in the opening? You know, throughout or... the novel, like I feel like we drop a lot of the stuff that it sets up in favor of more uh, sci-fi action space—not space, not space yeah. but sci-fi action—and and you know everybody trying to get with this. I guess what you would call it now would be a manic pixie dream girl is essentially what that character. Yeah. Is. yeah. It's supposed that to be that type of an archetype, um, and I what I what I really like are the stranger elements of the book that I wish w- weren't so sidelined by the kind of boring stuff going on with Nick Appleton and Charlie. Mm-hmm. See, see but, this book, you know, because it's it's po- hold on, David, it's posited in the novel that God died in 2019 and has yeah. been decay <laughs> decaying in orbit, right? 
why is that not more of a focus in this book? Yeah, right? Why is it just a I'd read book? an entire... Yeah, I'd read... <laughs> oh, by the I'd way, I'd read God so much more damn. about that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great, but it, even that doesn't really work into anything Dick is doing. It's very much a... It's very much a, a like, scattershot patchwork novel in the way that a lot of the earlier stuff was. Like, World Jones made is three different storylines that he's trying to weave together. It's yeah. very... To me, it's very reminiscent of that that type of an approach. David's pointing at me and he's given. You also have the sexless on that note. Super cop. Yeah. The sexless super cop. Yes, David. On the note, read the last Kim Stanley Robinson quote. (sighs) You know, is Kim Stanley Robinson the fourth member of this podcast or something? Damn. (laughs) He wrote his masters on Philip K. Dick. Come on. These these baldy thematic passages give the novel a tone dissimilar to that found in the earlier political novels. Almost all of the novels to this point are hopeful in some way. Either the dystopian state can be overthrown or held at bay or resisted in some private way. But here, the hopefulness is newly strained and strident and religious in nature. For the first time since the 1950s, a world police state is overthrown, but the revolution is accomplished by an alien with godlike powers. Landing in a spaceship, a deus, a deus ex machina, Another metaphor made literal. It looks as though Dick is saying the world can only be saved by the appearance of God, but he doesn't go that far. This God is only another sentience, more powerful than man, but not entirely trustworthy. So So what that raises is, is the idea that he's trying to say by God being dead is that here's a God-like being who can save you, but God can't save you because God's dead. So is it important? He also also says that that might not be God might just be another super powerful <coughs> alien just right. like totally. the, the frolic but what, what or frolic I mean, maybe god i find it i i find it interesting that we are so beaten down by the new men and the unusuals but we're still inviting an advanced alien race like species <laughs> race to save us from essentially these evolved other types of people it just seems like you're trading in one thing to, to for another. So well, see, you're going to totally I, hate me. Hold Corden, on. You... Corden was leading the human resistance. So there's, there's that element. And Provoni is off on some wild fucking goose chase. You know, no one believes that he's actually going to succeed. And, and no, but we, we, we killed Corden early on in the novel, which is unfortunate, I think, yeah. but necessary yeah. I mean, for the plot. Yeah, but and then Provoni's like, "Hey guys, guess what I found?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. He comes. Meanwhile, his friend's been cut in two or blasted with a laser blaster, yeah, and he shows up. <laughs> hey guys, wait! I found something. I found um, a big giant gelatinous alien, and he's got friends. Well, you're right. Uh, trying to get out from under the foot of some advanced being, we invite another advanced being to do it. There's a lot of contradictions in here. Yeah, and now, I don't necessarily. I don't necessarily know if they're, think they're, I don't they're, know if they're wrong. necessarily bad, or if, right. Well, or that's that's my point. They might be intentional. Like all that contradiction yeah. is in there. I I don't think they're bad, and I don't. I can't say whether or not Dick may intentionally did that. But what I can yeah. say is that I would rather have had a more of a focus on that than we kind of get. Right. Right. You know, we that, get all that, that finding all another that, all that Nick emo stuff and. Yeah, all all the Nick sad sack way I hate my wife crap. I don't need it. It's yeah. it's surface level action adventure 
I don't know what what to say nonsense that I don't want to read. But of course, it, it's point. Dick. It's what Dick does. And uh, every novel has that has that character. He Totally. He, and which I, I think very becomes interesting the through li- in well, the fundamentally flawed, incapable of solving their own problems character. But he, they're all the same person to me. Yeah. They never feel like they're experiencing their own unique brand of that. They just yeah, feel very, like... Very, very seldom is the character... Yeah ever getting yeah. out from under that that sad saccharine. Sad, sad saccharine. The sad sa- Dick's sad sack protagonist gallery. Yeah. It, it, I, yeah. I can only think It's all the same dude wearing a crumpled suit, overcame. man. So before, before we get into the final judgments, the last like the thing I want to talk about, and maybe you guys have notes on this, is some of the funny parts. Because I kind of like that last time we just highlighted the parts that made us laugh. Right. So I kind of want to do that here too. And then um, the first one that I have is on page 85. Um, when Graham says, um, I, um, I was a spy. I know almost everyone there. They were one, they were my one-time friends. They never found out about me because they don't look like I do now. I had an artificial head, <laughs> um, which is great. Um, and jump in at any point. If you guys have, oh, they have, well, I live all the alcohol uh, things, like the dangers of alcohol. It's so much like the uh, it it, it kind of reads like the uh, the the uh, marijuana stuff in the fifties, you know, the the pot kills and and all that reefer danger and all that stuff. <laughs> it might be you have if you have a sip of beer, you might end up killing your your best friend or something like it's just so ridiculous Uh, and and yet yet you're allowed to do as many pharmaceuticals as you can stuff in your face so for the actually map how many times does he bring up math in that a lot (laughs) a lot right yeah so on page 103 i was thinking about um imagining if anthony's uh boss at the office was a telepath because uh, it says a telepath had to have thick skin. In essence, he had to learn to relate to a person's conscious uh, positive thoughts, not vaguely defined mixture of unconscious processes at, at that region. Almost everything could be found in almost everyone. Every clerk typist who passed through his office, who had fleeting thoughts of destroying his superior and taking his place. Some aimed much higher than that. So I, I thought it was really funny when he was talking about how like, we really got to have thick skin to be a telepath because you're going to. It's it's true though. If you think about it, like if you knew, you know, your thoughts and you know how weird your own thoughts can be, no matter what the situation is like random Mm -hmm. split second thoughts that you have. Like if someone could read all those thoughts, they'd think you're an insane person. Right. It's your actions, what you do with the thoughts that you have that, that actually matter. And as a psychic, you know, as a telepath like that, you would definitely have to have some kind of filter. Otherwise, you would lose it quick. Um, page 108. Shut up and keep walking, the cop said. His large head, his new man expanded cranium, bobbing venomously. He looked angry and aggressive, looking for an opportunity to use his metal stick on someone. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about uh, Ild and his cage holding his giant head in place? And... Yeah. Uh, and no eyelids and just espousing yeah. all this ridiculous nonsense. Like, 
I'm using the super logic, and it says that there's a 0% chance that there's an alien. There, there, there you have it. No alien. It's all solved. Yeah, um, but there is an alien. <laughs> so much for your logic. And this is a subtle one, but on page 110, almost 1 million police employees are maintained at the peep-peep screens. <laughs> A huge bureaucracy. I love peep peep screens. Right. Um, and then probably the funniest thing to me in the entire book is on 128. So Thor's is getting angry at Morgo and um, he, but then he apologizes and he says, no sweat. The Froloxian answered. <laughs> he threw his head back and laughed. No sweat from a 90-ton gelatinous mass of protoplasmic slime that has engulfed the ship and his fluid body on every side of me like a barrel. And it says, no sweat. <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely one of my favorite parts of the book. So so I want to know how insane Ild is. Do you think the Great Ear is even a real project or he's just making it up? No, I think it's There's real. No real evidence that he's accomplished anything. Because he's supposed to be so smart, no one can know if he's smart or insane. That's how smart he is. I love that. He, he, he could be insane, but no one's smart enough to know if he's insane or not. Right. Um, I think the Great Year exists. I think, yeah? I think it's a huge part of their plan and how they're going to maintain all that. But, all but right. No, no, unless they're as smart as ill, no one is. So... All right, so to try and get into the timeline that we wanted to get into with this episode, um, I'm going to uh, move us along to final judgments. Unless, is there anything else you guys want to say? No, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, so um, I am definitely going to give this book three, well, I'd say 3.5 gray dinosaurs out of five. Um I the the, th- the three that I liked the parts that I liked I really liked and there's a lot that could be fixed if you were to do an adaptation or whatever and I appreciated the things that I didn't like I still think there's good aspects there but it just the first act didn't work for me super well is one thing and then all the personal life stuff there's at least a good portion of why I didn't rate this higher has to do with like the, come on, dude, we get it. You're, you're pissed (laughs) right now. You're getting divorced, but um, (laughs) I just think it was a little heavy handed in this one. And it, I do think it bled into the book in a kind of negative way. Right. Um, And, and, and I don't give a fuck if you call me PC, um, which is not a very PC attitude to take. (laughs) Not give a fuck. But don't give a fuck. I'm sorry that the stuff with the 16 year old and all the obsession over it was 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 cringy and it was awful and that did not help. <laughs> Anthony, so I'm gonna give this book uh, two two. Uh, let me think. Two irritating co-hosts that keep fucking talking over me out of five. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, uh, so yeah, just two out of five for me, just because I look, I, I think on paper, I really like this idea, but the execution seems really cobbled together. 
um, without a whole lot of thought put into it. There's a I don't know if you guys notice this, but there's a lot of repetitious over-explaining throughout the novel where I'm, I'm in certain chapters. I'm like, we already went over this. We already went over this. Like, I know what what Thoris Pavoni was doing. I didn't need the television characters a la Frank Miller and fucking, you know, D- the Dark Knight Returns you re-explaining know. the Thoris Pavoni stuff to me over again. I get it. I know what's going on. I know beer. I know alcohol is illegal. We spend this whole time with Nick being afraid of splitting a single beer with two other people right. about him getting <laughs> drunk. I know he's afraid of it. I get it. Move on. Okay. <laughs> There's so much... The book isn't that long, but it's a real, real fat novel. There's a lot of fat that can be cut from this book to make it at least leaner and a little bit more streamlined. So you think that's yes, because David, that, you have uh, an opinion? Thousand trying to reach oh, that. No, I'm just, I, I'm imagining Terry Carr coming down to Don Wilhelm's office and saying, "You know what? I think this Frolics Eight needs another draft." And Wilhelm being like, "No <laughs> way. He's gonna. My go, <laughs> writer's gonna break down." His his yeah. his cat's gonna get the Hong Kong flu. He's just like the dog's gonna eat. God, dude, stop saying that. <laughs> that was a real flu. Um, no, yeah. uh, it's it just doesn't it's, uh, doesn't track well. Doesn't track well in twenty twenty one. It doesn't track well in twenty twenty one. Yeah, um, yeah. So back to, okay. So back to what I was saying. I I was kind of thinking that Bobby was gonna be more of a focus throughout the novel. Like he's like, oh, I don't want to do it. I already know I'm gonna fail. Blah blah blah. So I thought that that was gonna come back around, and Bobby was actually gonna emerge as kind of something a little bit different than what his mom and dad are, and and maybe a different type of being, which I thought would have been a little bit more interesting. But I'd rather get put in the story of this kid who's grown up around all this BS that he has to do to get placed within the cis society he lives in, rather than his sad sack dad being like, I got to leave your, you and your mom. Cause there's this little uh, 16 year old that I'm trying to really get with. Honey pot. Which, to, to, uh, to echo to echo. And you know what, to echo what David was saying, like you can call me a woke baby all you want about them when i bring this stuff up on the podcast just like i got hammered for it when i brought it up in the cosmic puppets you can bring it up all you want i'm i'm still gonna talk about it um so you can again yeah you can call me a woke baby all you want but it's 2021 and i'm only what i'm I'm 35 well i'm 34 still you guys a little bit older but for me i'm reading it with my 35 year old now brain so i am gonna notice this stuff it's not why not talk about it because it's gross because there's two grown-ass there's two grown-ass men in this book both trying to have sex with a 16 year old one ruin one throws his entire life away and the other one hires his goon squad to have the other guy murdered because this girl leaves and doesn't want to sleep with his gross baron harkonnen ass which is (laughs) you know what if you're in in creating a villain, that would work. It would work if Nick Appleton's whole thing was, I just can't let this 16-year-old go out there knowing that this this old, like, slob monster is trying to, you know, get it. <laughs> but he's not. He's just also trying to get it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that, Bad. It's like Bad. when I saw Battle Angel Alita and I was like, everybody's just trying to sleep with this underage android. Yes. Right. Um... And yeah, I, I and I think that and same Nick with is Labyrinth as well. Just, man, just keep interrupting me, Bowie. <laughs> oh, fuck you, Bowie. Trying to sleep with a sixteen-year-old girl—that was also pretty gross. Yeah. All see, right. and and so it it really took me out of trying to focus on the really cool stuff that's in the book, like 
Thor's Provoni and the alien and their relationship. And, and I would have thought that we don't even really need Graham to be a focused villain. We could have, why not just jack up the, the mad science and overly pulpy aspects of this book and make ill the main bad guy. That, that would have been great. I wanted more of that character, but alas, maybe in the adaptation, they'll make a really cool purple sky cow or whatever the fuck it was. And we'll get some sick chase sequences and that. So yeah, two, two out of five for me, Larry. Well, I'm going to give it a two and a half. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, ersatz something or others because <laughs> uh, uh well yeah 2.5 yeah works i mean a lot of this novel is right down the the middle of the road with the pkdisms and all that stuff like it, a lot of it is expected and we've seen it all all before in different forms uh, there is a real a real sexist bent to this one that's not in the other books. I mean, yeah, there's, there's been cringy moments in the other books, but this one, it seems very consistent throughout that uh, Dick was having a real problem with women at this point. Like every mention of a woman is somehow they're disgusting or they're, they're evil or there's something wrong with them. You know, there, it's just a, it's horrible. It's yeah. horrible. And uh, it's but, rough in this one. Like it's in your face constantly. It's really in your face. Yeah. And as and, David said, dude, get over it. We know. Just get get over it. Get and over I, it. Even when even when I was reading the book, I was like, are there any female new men? Because uh, I I don't remember ever seeing a female new man new or, women. Or, new or, men or 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 an even an unusual. I mean, it's all all men all the time. And the women are there just to get in the way of the men doing their thing. It's a, it's a, it's a thing here. It's, it's a like thing. he was sitting at that goddamn 1941 Royal thinking, <laughs> Oh, I can't write any positive women. They're just going to take it all out on you. 1941 right? I mean, I mean, <laughs> Appleton straight up hardcore backhands his wife his for wife. changing the yeah. channel. That is a gross overreaction if I have ever seen one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of ugly stuff there. Um, so, and, and it, yeah, it does sort of outweigh the book. good stuff. Yeah, I mean, there is good stuff yeah. too. There's, there's definitely some good stuff. I really like the whole idea of new men and unusuals and the the different ranks and and forms of humanity. And you know, I like the alien coming in to save the human race and. I even like some of the some of the stuff with the with Nick and avoiding the cops and all that stuff. But yeah, it's, hard, it's hard to overcome all that all that you know misogynistic bullshit that's in there. Right. Yeah, it's it, it's uh, it's it's definitely not one that I that you know I would ever revisit. Yeah. Never. I or recommend to anyone. This. Or not, recommend. I would not recommend this book to anyone. Well, wait to said. stick around until you want to hear about my TV adaptation, then maybe. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, but if Electric Sheep Productions said, hey, Anthony, adapt this for film, and who do you have in mind to direct it? What are you doing, Anthony? Oh, I, I was actually thinking I'd make it into a TV show. Uh, there's so much going on in this book 
that you could almost do the first half of the season with just focusing on like the underground resistance and all of Thor's Provoni's uh, propaganda that his friend in prison creates and and all this and then we could actually get to know like nick and his wife and his um his son i would probably make bobby way more of a focus i would put graham in the background as the villain and bring ild into it is kind of like this insane supposedly the smartest man in the world who later on when when the show's over you realize is not that like his whole (laughs) idea is fucked so uh, i i would like to see it as a tv show uh any filmmakers connected or i mean i'll always tell you that alex garland can do everything so it's yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> well he doesn't fit the tone for what i would want to do what i would like to do <laughs> I, I would like to do a film could you say it any more snottily <laughs> i know do we need but to get you an there. i sure would like go. to do this yeah um no if i were gonna do it i'd do it as a film and i would um the way I would do it is I would kind of cut up the the A and B storylines with different tones. Um, I would do the police state stuff and the, the 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 way Earth is set up is just a little darker. And then just once we got to Thor's and Morgo, I would make that ridiculous as it is and kind of blend it together to end up being funny um, at the end and they have the tone kind of drastically change as it moves along because I think it would be funny if you were setting up this idea that that Thor's is this big savior out there that's going to come to get us and and his answer is that he's inside a slime mold giant gelatinous alien is hilarious you know and if you've got all your hopes pinned down on this guy coming back and he's like this is my friend He's a big giant ball of slime. <laughs> he's going to save us. And, yeah, right. <laughs> and so I could even picture like the trailer starting off like in a world, you know, and and like having like you know, you know, people dying, horrible police state things. Sarah McLaughlin singing about dogs, <laughs> like really intense. And then the second half of the trailer, like like a record scratch, and then there's like Thor's is coming back. With his sli- with his friend, a slime mold. You, you know, you could yeah, really that's do how a I lot do of it. cool stuff with the propaganda too for like the marketing yeah. campaign for the yep. show. Short review. You could do tons of cool stuff, and I would yeah. honestly, I wouldn't kill Eric Corden right away either. I would, yeah. but because yeah. the reason why I would want to do it that way is because of the thing that we talk about all the time, which is that PKD movies are paranoid action films, and it's we're well past the time where we need a PKD comedy. We need a PKD, like a funny PKD movie that is straight up as funny as his books. And you could do it with this one, in my opinion. <laughs> you could do it with us. I would, uh, yeah, I, I would make us. this an art film, a uh, documentary style. Uh, there would be no Appletons. There would be no Charlie. There would be none of that bullshit in there. It would be all about like the uh, the the main boss guy and Ild, uh, so Graham and Ild and Provoni and and Corden, like but documentary style, different different uh, film styles for each person. Like we we do the the onboard cameras for the spaceship, like the prison camera for Corden, 
you know, that, that kind of thing, like a, a, a real documentary crew for, for ILD or something like that. Like here's what the genius does on his free, in his free time and stuff. But uh, don't mind the fact that he's insane looking and yeah. has no eyelids. <laughs> and that's part, the part I like. I, I did watch a documentary about uh, Brian Wilson and how he stayed in bed for like three years. And I, I, from that sort of gave me this idea of, of seeing, you know, Graham running the entire world from his bedroom. And I thought that was, that would be cool to see in a, in a documentary style. Uh, Larry, do you have a tech like suggestion for this month? Yeah. And it's sort of very specific to this, this novel, uh, because it's about, it's about gods and stuff like that. It's a video game called Loop Hero. And while the gameplay is, is sort of like medieval fantasy type stuff, like so this, the God themes in it are really, are really close to like this novel. It's about is God dead or is God alive and what is going on? The universe has collapsed entirely. And this one human character is supposed to be rebuilding it just through fighting through these loops of, uh, of uh, whatever it is, a road basically he walks along a road in a loop and then creates parts of the world outside of that. And there's this whole storyline of recurring, of uh, uh, recurring destinies and, and all this stuff. And the gameplay is fun and it's a, like got some card elements, some, uh, some battle elements. It's it's a good game, and the, I don't want to reveal too much by talking about the god stuff. But you you fight different gods, different, and there's some surprises in there. So that's what makes it dick like is the is yeah. It, is there yeah, very much the gnostic the gnostic part of it. Yeah, this fits that really well. Not the other stuff so much, but the the gnostic part. Yeah. All right. Well, this month, my dick-like suggestion is a nonfiction book, Ooh. which is weird. Um, uh, I don't. I don't know. I, have I done a nonfiction book before? I probably have. But um, but uh, this book that I read last month was called "We Have Been Harmonized" by Kai Strittmeiter or Strittmatter. He's a German um, journalist who covers China for uh, Das Spiegel, I believe, for the German paper. And um, so this book is about the Chinese surveillance state and the modern form of how um, China maintains social order through surveillance and social manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought of PKD many times while reading this book um, because there's a lot of things, especially I thought about the man who japed and the, um, the, uh, the way that the con apps have like the community um, standards right. where you have to follow the community standards. So China started this program, according to this book, where you get credits for social credits for being nice and for doing good things. And for like, you know, if somebody tips you on your social media that you did something nice for them, then you get a social credit and like, um, 
without these social credits, like basically if you're an asshole, you don't get a free. But it's a, it's a lot like that uh, Black Mirror episode with the, yes. with the, the phone and the, you know. The it's not quite as intense as that, but. Of course not, but. Yeah, but it's getting there. And um, this, we have been harmonized. Um, I contacted his, the agency that he works for and made a request to get him on the show, but I haven't heard nothing back yet, but I'm trying. I don't know if he likes PKD. Uh, he never mentions PKD. It was interesting because a lot of these books, you know, you'll see the, it's like it's out of a Philip K. Dick novel. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, um, and so when you're searching for news articles for PKD, you find... 30 of those a week where somebody says it's like it's out of a Philip K. Dick novel. And surprisingly, he did not do that in this book, even though I was thinking that uh, mm. at many times. Anthony, do you have a dick like suggestion this month? Nah, dog, I'm good. <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I haven't read anything that's dick like. I've been reading mostly nonfiction and horror, and none of it is dick like. I am very meticulous at this point. Like, what I I want to be very sure that what I'm recommending, I honestly think is dick like, and I'm not just pulling something out of my ass like I do when I talk most of the time. <laughs> uh, there's a TV show on HBO Max called Made for Love too that people might want to check out. Um, but how do you guys find the time to watch and read all this shit? I I've only watched left a... of it so far, but uh, well, I don't have a job, so <laughs> yeah, Fair he has time. plenty of time. Um, all right, so on that note, I think we're done here. Um, keep it paranoid. What, what about coming up next? Coming up next, Anthony. Anthony, oh. sorry, sorry, I uh, forgot we were doing this. Hold on, I forgot we were doing a show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hold on, I, I bring looking, it up. I was looking at uh, tits on, on Instagram, so. Oh, no. <laughs> I was responding to a message. About All tits right. on Instagram. All right. 14 strangers came to Del Mac O. 13 of them were transferred by the usual authorities. One got there by praying. But once they arrived on the, that planet whose very atmosphere seemed to induce paranoia and psychosis, the newcomers found that even prayer was useless. For on Del Mecco, God is either absent or intent on destroying his creations. We're reading A Maze of Death, and I'm very excited because this sounds that like sounds, a book totally made really, for me. It does sound yeah. really good. Um, yeah, I'm into that. Yeah, and I have a special guest in mind for that one. So um, hopefully we might have somebody else too. So uh, on that note, uh, keep it paranoid. Yeah, be, be paranoid. Bye. 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 Bye.